Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, a prenup can be seen as protecting both sides of the union. I've heard so many conversations of the underlying meaning that can be portrayed, including the thought that a prenup is due to the lack of trust in the man- in the marriage's longevity. Or maybe it may make them feel like you are the only one, that you are only there with them for money or for any sort of social circumstance. It is definitely not an easy discussion to bring up with a future spouse, but it is a very important one which is why our episode today is going to be decoding prenups in today's relationships. Our guest today is from a legal perspective, with an interest in all aspects of family law, both from a historical and a contemporary perspective. He is a senior lecturer in law at Macquarie University in Sydney. Please welcome Dr. Henry Carr to the studio. Thank you, Dana. It's so great to have you on because we've never had an actual legal perspective on an aspect on the show today. So it's so great to have a little bit more of what it is in the meaning of what a prenup is and in terms of how it sort of fits in with the the way that marriages work in today's society. So as a professional, what is your role in helping families and couples get a deeper understanding into the legal knowledge of a prenup? So I'm a university lecturer and my main role is to research uh, different aspects of family law. And one major aspect is uh, the division of family property after separation or divorce. (laughs) Um, And prenuptial agreements, as they are colloquially known as, uh, feature uh, as a significant aspect of uh, prenuptial agreements, also of of family property law. Um, So... uh, what my research endeavours uh, to achieve is a better understanding of how the law works, um, provide more insights um, into different aspects of the law, particularly um, how the law is interpreted by the courts and how they're implemented in, in practice. It's one thing to have um, the statute books and, and the laws. It's another thing uh, for the courts to uh make decisions um, in uh, cases involving ordinary people and how ordinary people uh, implement um, uh, decisions uh, based on the law. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge difference between what's historically known as the law and what people use it for now, I would assume then. Yeah. uh, I mean, the idea of prenuptial agreements as being legally enforceable is a relatively modern thing. Uh, historically, uh, prenuptial agreements were not legally enforceable as a matter of public policy. Uh, the reason being it was because uh, the idea of a prenuptial agreement was seen as conducive to divorce, um, and it also meant that parties were contracting out of the court's jurisdiction, and 
court wanted to ensure that um, they had the ultimate say um, and could make decisions um, if um, a, a property dispute arose in the family law context. Um, so in, in Australia, uh, in particular, uh, prenuptial agreements, or um, as they are more formally known as, um, binding financial agreements have only been around since the year 2000. So wow. um, it's quite, as I said, a, 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 a relatively uh, modern um, thing that has existed in family law. Mm-hmm. And what when you hear, like, when people talk about prenuptial agreement, what's the most common thing? frustration that they sort of get when I think I mentioned earlier that some people see prenuptial agreement as being a positive and a negative is it more common that people see the negative sides to it or is it also they do see the benefits that sort of come across well us our prenuptial agreements um have been interpreted both positively and negatively obviously um there is some resistance to the whole idea of, of a prenuptial agreement that um, couples, um, before they get married, are contemplating the hypothetical um, prospect of getting divorced. And obviously, it's not very romantic to start about uh, prenuptial agreements just before getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's uh, the critical uh, angle in regards to prenuptial agreements. Um, but in terms of why it exists and um, why uh, many couples have opted to uh, enter into prenuptial agreements, uh, it, it is because of, I think, three, three main reasons. Uh, one is wealth disparity between uh, the couple. Uh, another reason is associated with dynastic wealth. So uh, uh, a person who is born in a wealthy family um, may feel pressure from their parents to assign a prenuptial agreement before they get married because that um, person is expected to inherit a lot of money in the future. Um, so a, a prenuptial agreement can be used as a form of wealth protection. Um, and it's also commonly used in the context of second or later marriages. Um, so uh, couples who have previously had relationships but have been burned financially as a result of separation are bit more wary second time or even third time round and opt to have um, a prenuptial agreement to protect their wealth and assets, uh, not only for themselves, but also for children from previous relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a a reason why uh, couples may elect to have prenuptial agreements to ensure that their wealth is preserved for uh, their own children. Now, that's such a great introduction to our topic today, and I can't wait to discuss it further. But before we do, I love to start off with a little get to know you, sort of like get some of your recommendations and some of your passions as well. So to start off with, what is the most recent book that you've read? Well, I'm currently reading a book on the history of Vietnam. Um, So I I really like to read books about history. one of my research areas is legal history, but I like to look at history more generally. So um, it's quite a fascinating read um, to see how uh, Vietnam has transformed into the modern stage. And you know, in the 20th century, it was embroiled in a lot of conflict. Um, so um, it is interesting to see how they have uh, managed to deal with uh, so much calamity in their recent history. So I definitely love learning more about history. So that's that's a really exciting book, it sounds. Now, what is the 
movie that you would recommend to our viewers? Uh, okay, that's an interesting question. I really enjoyed Quentin Tarantino's film Pulp Fiction. Um, it's really exciting. Um, it, it's the story's told in a non-linear way, which um, makes it more intriguing to watch. Um, there's a lot of action, and that may not be everyone's cup of tea. But uh, for me, I, I think it's, it's a fun movie to watch. And if you're out for a good time, um, Pulp Fiction's a, a good movie to, to pick. I'm so glad fi someone finally suggested Pulp Fiction. I think we don't get that much that that often, and I love that movie so much. Um, during my uni degree, I had to dissect each of the characters and each of the the film in so many different ways. So, I love that film very intimately now. <laughs> now, could you name a podcast that actually really stands out to you? Uh, ABC Revision. Um, so uh, for your foreign listeners, um, the ABC stands for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, so that's Australia's national uh, radio broadcaster, um, as well as TV. Um, and Revision is a podcast about uh, uh, various current affairs issues. I've appeared on Revision once to talk about the history of the family court in Australia. Um, and um, each um, week they um, showcase a, a different issue um, and they go through uh, the issue in significant detail. So I'm always exploring new ideas when I host that podcast. That sounds like a really important podcast to really have a just sit down and listen to and really learn from. Now, who is a person that you find yourself looking up to? Okay, so in regards to a famous role model, um, your listeners probably won't know this person, but he was famous during his time. His name is David Shepherd. He was the captain of the English cricket team, um, and he later became a bishop in the Church of England. Um, what I am impressed about is all the achievements he had um, accomplished in his life, to be world-class cricketer, to you know, leading um, uh, a diocese. Um, he the reason why I, I think he's a good role model was because he was actively involved in this community, striving to um, improve um, relations between different peoples. He fought against racism and um, tried to uh, help alleviate poverty. Um, and my interest in family law is also concerned with. Um, trying to make society a better place. Um, so um, I think that's the reason why I've chosen him as, as a role model to try to find ways um, uh, to, to strive to be a better person. And um, I, I think it is a noble goal to try to make uh, society and the community stronger and more resilient. That is a big change in profession going from a cricketer to a bishop. That is <laughs> that is a huge change. It's amazing to see what he's done he's done with that and he's done since then. So I can definitely see why. Now, during your academic pursuit, what's been one course that has really stuck to you to this day? Of course it's family law. <laughs> uh, I'm a family law academic. I really enjoyed studying family law when I was a law student. And the reason why was it's about people, and people are very fascinating and interesting. Um, in law, uh, you learn about all sorts of topics, 
And look, they're, they're very important too. And I also enjoyed studying uh, different subject matters. But um, with family law, it, it's quite an eclectic subject. There are so many topics, you never get bored. Um, so on the one hand, I, I could be researching parenting matters. Then next moment, I'm looking at um, doctrinal property matters and international child abduction, adoption law, surrogacy. Um, as you can see, there are quite a lot of ethical issues in, in, in family law. So I, I think that makes it interesting. Uh, with family law, the fundamental question that uh, people are asking is what makes for a good life? Because judges have to make decisions about um, people's futures, whether that be who the children spends time with or how uh, family property is divided. How, how should people uh, live their lives after separation? And I, I think that is really a profound existential question. That's why I got interested in family law. No, I, I I agree. I think even just the social aspects to it, I think family, just the whole aspect of family is very interesting. Um, that's why I do this show. It's, it's, a, it's one of the most interesting aspects to really look into. So I can definitely see how law really fits into that. Now, I know that everyone has a very different definition as to what family is. To you, what would your definition of a family be? Uh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, the idea of family has changed, particularly uh, people's imagination of the formation of family. But I don't think in substance it's changed too much. I think the nuclear family is still uh, the standard model that people aspire to. Most people would be um, in a family that resembles uh, the nuclear family. So just to clarify, the nuclear family is um, mum, dad, and kids. Um, and that, that it has been uh, a universal pattern. Um, now, in different cultures, um, some families are multi-generational where you, uh, grandparents, uh, parents, and children all live together. Um, in Western culture, it typically is just the, the parents and the children. Um, but I did mention that there have been uh, changing forms of family. So uh, particular changes include uh, the rise of the factor relationships. Uh, not everyone in an in a intimate partner relationship is necessarily married. But um, even then, um, de facto couples um, still model their uh, lives in uh, a way that resembles a nuclear family. They, some couples have children and that substantive structure really hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. um, then there's um, same-sex relationships uh, and a lot of people nowadays are, are, are single. So um, the idea of family has shifted in form, but uh, I think people still identify that in substance, nuclear family um, is still there, um, but it, it uh, is embodied in, in different forms nowadays. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the family and the whole idea of family still holds the same importance as it has done in previous years, say five, ten years ago? I think the family as an institution is still very important. Um, it is... Uh, bedrock of uh, society uh, in terms of how people form their lives from a sociological perspective. Um, Decision-making is localised to the family. 
um, and it's uh, still seen as a, a system of kinship and, and support. So if an individual falls on hard times, they can still hopefully in many cases um, resort to their family for support. Um, and as a society, uh, particularly in, in the West, uh, there has been an emphasis on on the family. Uh, there's a principle known as uh, subsidiari subsidiarity, um, and it refers to the idea that decision-making should be localised. So there's government, and they make decisions that affect the whole community. But for ordinary matters, um, as a society, um, and this is reflected in, in family law, uh, decision-making uh, should be made by uh, individuals in the family context. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, in, in parenting matters, uh, it's compulsory that um, the parents go through uh, alternative dispute resolution, such as mediation, um, because the view is that um, it's their lives. They need to make decisions uh, that promote the best interests of uh, their children. Um, so, uh, as a society, uh, there is still that promotion of the family as the primary decision maker in regards to major life decisions. Uh, and we have a family law act in Australia and in other countries, they also have family law legislation. So, um, while the, there are different forms of family um, in the present context, um, the family as an institution is still very important in society. Mm -hmm. And now talking a little bit more about marriage and the whole, the whole idea of marriage, how would you define what the institute of a marriage is? Okay, that, that's an excellent question. Um, and... Um, in the Australian context, that has been um, up for debate, particularly in 2017 when there was um, a, a postal survey on uh, changing the definition of marriage. I think to answer that question, it's worth starting with the legal definition of marriage and exploring how we got to uh, this particular understanding of marriage. So in the Australian Marriage Act, a marriage is defined as uh, the union of two people to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life. So there are some elements that are worth breaking down here. Um, so marriage is viewed as a monogamous union. In past, it was viewed as a union between a man and a woman. Um, but as a result of um, the changes to the Marriage Act in 2017, um, marriage nowadays can encompass those in a same-sex relationship as well as um, those in an opposite-sex relationship. Uh, it is monogamous because there's an emphasis that uh, marriage is to the exclusion of all others. Um, it's voluntary and um, that, that expression does have legal meaning. In other societies, um, there could be forced marriages, but in, in Australia, uh, to enter into a marriage it has to be done with the consent of parties. And the expectation is that marriage is for life. Um, and that is quite a noble aspiration. But in practice, uh, in Australia, about 50,000 or so people get, or couples get divorced each year. Um, so uh, 
as a matter of public policy, the aspiration is that marriage is for life. But of course, divorce law also exists. Um, so mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily for life for everyone else, but it is still uh, the ideal. So when it comes to the idea that marriage is for life, for example, as one of the key components for a long-lasting marriage, do you believe that that is essential for a successful Hang on, I'm getting my question mixed up. Sorry, that is on my end. <laughs> so what are some of the key and components and key expectations that are essential for a successful and fulfilling marriage according to some of the legal uh, terms that you mentioned? Oh, okay, well, that's quite a profound question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not necessarily an expert on what makes a happy and fulfilling marriage. But um, I have read a lot of family law cases involving uh, divorce and uh, the other end of the spectrum. Um, I I can tell you why marriages have broken down. So marriages have broken down as a result of extramarital affairs. Um, People often get divorced in their 40s. Um, so if you look at the median age of divorce, it, it's around the 40-year um, mark of their lives. Um, reason being is, uh, I guess a lot of people have midlife crises. They uh, once fell into love, but uh, over time, they couldn't sustain the relationship together as a couple. Uh, people's uh personalities and priorities change over time. Um, So there are all sorts of reasons why marriages break down. Um, So financial stress is another big issue as well. Um, Unfortunately, in society, uh, family violence is a big problem that causes the breakdown of marriage. So um, that explains uh, the unhappy side of why marriages break down. Mm -hmm. Uh, to promote a, a happy marriage, well, I think um, couples have to try to remain committed with each other. Um, in life, people go through all sorts of challenges um, and people either grow together as a result of overcoming obstacles or in other situations, these challenges are insurmountable and it puts too much pressure on the relationship causing breakdown. Um, So, I mean, that's just a snapshot of uh, some happy marriages and uh, what unhappy marriages may look like. Mm -hmm. And how has the concept of marriage evolved in recent years? Yes. So that's an interesting question as well. Uh, So I just gave a legal definition, but it's worth exploring Um, whether people still get married and how they get married. Uh, So uh, the fact that relationships are more common, uh, so uh, marriage isn't seen as the default uh, to display to the community that a couple are in a a committed relationship. Um, So that's changed. There are different forms of intimate partner relationships one being marriage, other being de facto relationships. In terms of how people get married, that has significantly changed. So 100 years ago, most people would get married in a church or in um, 
in a religious context. Uh, but nowadays, most people get married uh, before a civil celebrant. Um, so uh, a non-religious uh, civil ceremony. Uh, so nowadays in Australia, uh, yeah, the vast majority of couples have um, uh, a civil marriage um, before a civil celebrant. So that, that has changed uh, significantly. And as mentioned, the definition of marriage has uh, recently evolved to encompass uh, those in same-sex relationships. So marriage historically was viewed for um, the procreation of children to ensure that there was a stable environment for the upbringing of children, also to ensure that there was an institution that supported those in committed relationships. Um, there was a visible public sign that uh, a couple were together. Um, and also um, bear in mind that historically um, Western societies were uh, very Christian societies. Uh, the idea was being a committed relationship was a way um, to uh, avoid fornication or other sexual sins. Um, so it had that those purposes. Um, but nowadays, people get married or are committed de facto relationships because of choice. Um, people want to pursue happiness. Um, I would describe the phenomenon as eudemonistic liberalism. So in other words, people trying to uh, pursue happiness uh, and having the free choice of um, finding meaning in life through a, a, a partner, um, even in the context of marriage or the factor relationship. Mm -hmm. And throughout that evolution, the evolution of how marriage sort of comes about and what are some of the new opportunities that this new idea of marriage and this whole new evolution of marriage, how does that sort of take place within an, any new marriages that are entering or starting now? Is there any is there any benefit to how it can be seen now compared to how it can be seen um, in previous years? I think the law and society is more tolerant of uh, diverse ranges of relationships. Um, and uh, the law still tries to promote uh, these stable relationships uh, as being the ideal. Uh, in law, there's uh, often a distinction between formalities and substance. So as I alluded earlier, uh, there are different forms of relationships that people can now uh, undertake, whether that be a marriage or a de facto relationship. Uh, in other jurisdictions, there are civil unions or civil partnerships or registered relationships. But in substance, uh, despite different forms of legally recognized relationships, in substance, these relationships are effectively the same in the sense that uh, the law is trying to promote commitment, um, stability. Uh, marriage is seen as a source of kinship support um, that you rely on your spouse or partner um, throughout 
life, particularly during challenging circumstances, and being in a legally recognised relationship uh, has legal consequences. Uh, so, in, for instance, when a person passes away, typically their spouse or partner uh, will uh, inherit uh, the family property. Um, so, it has to be well. The marriages and marriage-like relationships need to be seen in that context as a system of, of, of social support. Um, obviously, there is the romantic aspect of being married um, mm -hmm. and declaring your public commitment um, to your friends and family, um, but there are also uh, public policy reasons why uh, marriage is still important because it does provide you know, that system of kinship support. Um, your partner or spouse can provide you love. The government can't love you in the same way that uh, being in a relationship can. So that's the reason why uh, marriages are still important. Mm -hmm. I think especially when, when you mention the legal ramifications when it comes to even, I guess, children, when sort of children come into the picture, there's that chance that they that marriage is sort of there legally to protect the kids as well, knowing that the children will go to the other parent, will go to the um, parent that's there in order that they trust as well. So there is sort of that legal aspect. I'm assuming if that's if that's the case is how it will go with uh, how children are involved as well. Yeah, so in regards to children, um, they have their status recognised in the context of family. So historically, children born out of wedlock were viewed as illegitimate children and they wouldn't have the right of uh, inheriting property from their biological parents. Obviously, nowadays, uh, those illegitimacy laws have been abolished, um, but uh, it is important how the law does recognise the status of the child in the family, uh, not only for the purposes of inheriting um, the estate when a parent passes away, um, but also in terms of recognising who has the responsibility for the child's upbringing. Um, the law formally recognises that uh, parents have uh, the responsibility for the upbringing of the children. Parents are expected to make uh, decisions that promote the child's best interests. Um, so having a family law that recognises parental responsibility as well as children's rights is very important. Um, children also have views and they have the right to express their views. Um, and this is often a conundrum within uh, family law cases um, because the parents want one thing, but the child may want something else. The child mm -hmm. may not necessarily want to live with dad, um, but the court needs to make a decision that will be in the child's best interests, not simply what the child wants. Mm -hmm. Now, trust is fundamental in any relationship. How can couples build and maintain trust in the context of prenuptial agreements? Yeah, that's a fantastic question um, because bringing up uh, a prenuptial agreement on a date isn't really uh, the most nope. romantic thing to do. Um, and when people date, 
they don't often exchange their financial records. <laughs> um, and awkward questions do have to be raised because um, even when couples get engaged, it doesn't mean that each party has a true understanding of the financial status of their partner. Um, so it can be tricky to ask, what blank, how much money do you have? Um, so there is a degree of sensitivity that um, needs to be um, borne in mind when uh, discussing prenuptial agreements. I think it's an important question. I think um, you need to be honest. Um, and nowadays there are a lot of uh, marriage preparation courses and in these courses um, the couple are asked about financial questions. I think mm -hmm. it's important to have that full disclosure um, that uh, you don't, you're not hiding any assets, um, that it's clear how much money uh, each party has. Um, it can get very emotional, um, especially in talking about your sense of worth um, being construed in a financial sense. Um, one uh, tip um, would be uh, not, to not always talk about financial matters. Talk about financial matters when you're in a position to do so because if you're in a, you just had an argument, probably not the best idea to talk about finances. Yeah. Um, some people would suggest that um, you only talk about um, prenuptial agreements when you uh, see your lawyer and you have that formal legal discussion and not to always bring it up at the dinner table um, because there could be um, emotional pressure. It's also, as I've mentioned, a little bit uncomfortable to constantly be discussing. Um, mm. So it's how that separation that you know that um, you'll talk about prenuptial agreements um, in that uh, legal context or when you're going for formal negotiations, that way there's separation. It's like working in a family business. It would be a bit unhealthy if um, the family members always talked about work. So mm -hmm. it's having um, that distinction between um, you know work and life, as well as you know talking about financial affairs and getting on with uh, the rest of your life affairs. Mm -hmm. And how can that conversation really be um, sort of promoting a greater sense of trust between the partners? I think a full and frank discussion uh, promotes transparency. Um, that way there are no surprises during or during the marriage or after separation. Mm -hmm. uh, it can promote a sense of trust that you have faith and confidence in, in your spouse or partner to discuss these sensitive financial matters and having that full transparency, I think does promote the relationship rather than hiding things. I think disputes arise when there is misunderstanding or when um, people have been opaque and unclear. Um, that's, that's when, um, arguments may arise. So mm -hmm. being full and frank about uh, one's position. And I think especially a lot of people sort of take prenuptial, that whole prenup agreement, that whole prenup list as something that sort of remarks the not being trust in the fact that 
this person is wanting a long marriage or this person is wanting a longevity in the marriage. How can that, why is that such a, a viewpoint that a lot of people have? I think it's a, a, an understandable um, reaction given the fact that if you're asked to write a prenuptial agreement, the assumption may be you don't completely trust in our relationship, you don't think that things will work out, why are you preparing for the demise of our relationship when the relationship has just begun? Uh, so th these are natural concerns, I, I think particularly for those who have been married, um, going for their first marriage. Um, it's less controversial when um, you're considering um, those who have been um, divorced and are up to their second or, or later marriage. Um, there is more life experience and understanding that a prenuptial agreement is a sensible topic to discuss. But mm -hmm. for those couples who are getting married for the first time, uh, who haven't had the experience of marital life, um, prenuptial agreements... Um, can be a sensitive topic, mm -hmm. um, but as I mentioned, look, it, it's it's not for everyone. Uh, not everyone needs a prenuptial agreement, but um, if there are you know, significant financial assets, uh, if there is a need to protect intergenerational family wealth, um, then it would be reasonable to discuss finances given um, the huge consequences uh, if divorce were to occur. Uh, I, I mean, for the most part, uh, many people who are getting married for the first time, they're likely to be young. Um, they probably don't have significant assets. There's probably no real need to have a prenuptial agreement in that context. Mm. Um, so from a practical perspective, it's worth considering what sort of people enter into prenuptial agreements uh, and one class of couples that enter into prenuptial agreements typically involve one wealthier party marrying someone who is less financially well off and quite naturally the wealthier party wants to protect their assets in the event that divorce occurs. Uh, so there is a, a gender dynamic as well. Um, a lot of people who enter into prenuptial agreements uh, do so to protect their wealth for their children or for themselves. Um, it's not uncommon. In fact, it is quite common for a wealthier man to ask their younger wife to enter into a prenuptial agreement. There is imbalance, and there's always going to be a degree of imbalance when entering into these sorts of agreements. Um, but um, the law uh, recognises that people have the freedom of contract and it's up to um, each party to decide uh, how they wish to divide the property should separation occur. Mm -hmm. So it's a, there's a lot of stereotypes attached to the who's more likely to ask for a prenuptial agreement. Yeah, uh, I, I think the stereotypes are rooted in Facts. They may be a bit exaggerated, but um, as I mentioned, a classic um, example would be yeah, a wealthier man who may be onto their second, onto his second or, or, or later marriage, marrying a younger woman. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's one type 
of um, a situation where a party would wish to have a prenuptial agreement. Another scenario, which is a little less known, is in the context of uh, dynastic wealth. So um, this involves a person who has wealthy parents. Um, their parents may have um, a big business, and mm. the expectation is that um, uh, the child will eventually inherit a lot of wealth. And that situation, the parents may put pressure on their child to sign a prenuptial agreement for uh, getting married in order to protect the generational wealth within the family context. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's the second class of couples who have prenuptial agreements. The third class are those who are on to their second or later marriage. Um, and in these sorts of situations, there is more likely uh, going to be power balance. Um, so if you have a couple, each uh, party has been divorced and they're on to their second marriage, they each have life experience. Um, if they're roughly the same age, um, they would have uh, similar amounts of wealth and they would be in a position to fairly bargain. Um, but the problem with prenuptial agreements is that uh, you could have a situation where uh, a younger, more vulnerable party um, who has less financial resources feels pressured to signing these prenuptial agreements. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in that context, um, that vulnerable party may not be um, making the best decision for their financial future. Um, so in those situations, there is clearly a power imbalance. Um, the more vulnerable party may be more willing to accept unfair terms just to have that relationship because a wealthier party can just simply say, if you don't sign the prenuptial agreement, the marriage is not going ahead. Um, mm -hmm. In that situation, it's, it's effectively an ultimatum. Um, now, even though in the law it is a requirement that each party seek independent legal advice, it doesn't necessarily ameliorate the unfair bargaining positions uh, um, because, as I mentioned, if, if um, the wealthier party says, you must sign the prenuptial agreement um, before we get married, um, if you're in a financially vulnerable position, if you have migrated to Australia and are on a temporary visa, then you don't really have a strong bargaining position to begin with, and you may just simply accept um, the terms set out in the prenuptial agreement. And there was a high court case recently on this issue called Fawn and Kennedy, um, and the facts involved uh, a wealthier Australian man in his uh, 60s, falling in love online to mm -hmm. a younger woman in her 30s from Eastern Europe. Um, and a few days before they got married, um, the wife was pressured into signing a, 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 a binding financial agreement or a prenuptial agreement that was uh, disadvantageous towards her. So effectively, the terms of the agreement would have left the vast majority of the property to um, the husband um, and would have left the wife with uh, only a little bit of money. 
Mm -hmm. um, so this is the problem with prenuptial agreements because uh, the idea of prenuptial agreements is attempting to balance competing public policy aims. On the one hand, uh, the aim of uh, prenuptial agreements is to promote personal choice and autonomy, to avoid going to court, to make decisions that the parties agree to. Mm -hmm. uh, so freedom of contract. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as a society, we don't want people to be left penniless. We don't want people to be left in poverty after signing a disadvantageous um, prenuptial agreement. Mm -hmm. um, it, in Australia, it is possible to set aside a prenuptial agreement if it has been formed as a result of unconscionable conduct or undue influence, um, but there is no provision in the Family Law Act that states that prenuptial agreements must promote um, substantial fairness or uh, to avoid serious injustice. So New Zealand has uh, a provision that states that uh, a prenuptial agreement can be overturned if it would promote serious injustice. That doesn't exist in Australia. Um, so you could have a situation where parties have entered into a prenuptial agreement on unfair terms. Now, mm -hmm. one might argue that's their choice. People are free to make bad decisions in life. Uh, on the other hand, as I've mentioned, um, some people are pressured into entering into prenuptial agreements because they don't have uh, significant bargaining power. Um, so. This is the balance that needs to be promoted on the one hand, promoting freedom of choice, but on the other hand, ensuring that there is an exploitation of vulnerable parties that may lead them into a situation where they're in uh, financial distress or poverty uh, after separation. Wow, it's amazing that we don't have that policy to sort of find the balance between. So when it comes to one party wanting the prenuptial agreement and one party not wanting that not wanting that prenuptial that list of terms how do you which way does legally does it favor does it favor towards getting the prenuptial agreement or is it favor towards the other party okay so uh, for a prenuptial agreement to be legally binding both parties must sign it mm -hmm. um, and they must each have separate legal advice. Um, you can't force someone to enter into a prenuptial agreement, mm -hmm. um, but the court can set aside uh, a prenuptial agreement if they find that there are uh, vitiating factors, or in other words, are factors that spoil um, the validity of the prenuptial agreement. So as, as I mentioned in regards to the High Court of Australia case, the court eventually did set aside the prenuptial agreement because they found that the husband had exploited his position um, by uh, preying upon uh, the special disadvantages that his wife was under. Uh, she was from overseas. She only had a few days to contemplate um, the prenuptial agreement. Otherwise, the marriage would have been cancelled and that would cause significant embarrassment to himself and her family, given the fact that you know, friends and family had flown in just for the wedding. Mm -hmm. um, so in that situation, there's no free choice. 
and it will be unconscionable to exploit someone's special disadvantage in that situation. Uh, you have to think about the alternative. So uh, if a, a prenuptial agreement is not valid, then you have to go through uh, the family court system and go through the Family Law Act. Um, so uh, the Family Law Act looks at uh, each party's financial and non-financial contributions to the relationship and their future needs. Mm -hmm. um, so the court um, deals with these sort of family property cases um, based on these contribution and future needs factors. Um, and if you enter into a prenuptial agreement, you are contracting out of these legal safeguards. That's the risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, if you're a non-moneyed spouse in a more precarious financial situation, you may wish to be under uh, the standard sections of the Family Law Act that deal with the division of family property rather than being in a prenuptial agreement that contains unfair terms um, because the court will ensure that um, party is not left in state of destitution, um, that their basic needs will be met. Um, so there's a remedial function the Family Law Act provides, but if you have a prenuptial agreement, you are contracting out of that and potentially agreeing to unfair terms. Mm -hmm. That said, just to be fair, um, many agreements are contracted on an equal basis and there are fair terms. And the advantage of a prenuptial agreement is that you don't have to go through the expense and the time of court litigation. Um, the idea is that the parties have consciously agreed on how the property should be divided um, and uh, parties should just simply follow uh, what they have set out in the prenuptial agreement because it takes you know, years and years for a matter to be heard um, by the judge and it, it is a very expensive endeavour to go through the, the family justice system. Mm -hmm. And... Just to be clear, I know that you've listed some of the common sort of prenuptial terms that would come about. What are some what are some terms that are a bit more a bit more uh, on the side where legally you won't agree to? So some unagreeable terms that should that are listed that you can sort of list out for us. Yes, yeah, so unfair terms would include one party getting nearly everything and the other party getting a small amount. So, for instance, um, to use the, the high court um, case that I mentioned, the case is called Fawn and Kennedy. Mm -hmm. uh, the wife was provided, I believe, $50,000 upon separation. Um, and bear in mind that the husband's um, estate was valued between eighteen. To twenty-four million dollars. So, um, wow. you can clearly see that that is an unfair term. In fact, when the wife saw the lawyer, the lawyer said, "This is the worst uh, prenuptial agreement that I've ever seen. Please don't sign it." But obviously, in the circumstances that she found herself in, she had no choice but to sign it because if you didn't sign it, the marriage would have been called off. Um, and she signed the agreement twice. There's something called a post-nuptial agreement. Um, so she signed the prenuptial agreement with those unfair terms. Then after they got married, she signed a 
post-nuptial agreement with effectively the same terms. So you would think that because she signed the agreement twice, um, it was legally solid and mm -hmm. would be able to uh, withstand litigation. However, the court found that um, the wife, he didn't really have free choice to make that decision. It was unconscionable for that decision to be made. Um, and nowadays, lawyers are a little bit reluctant to encouraging parties to uh, enter into these prenuptial agreements, particularly if the contract, the prenuptial agreement is um, formed a few days or a few weeks before the wedding. Um, mm -hmm. Because in that situation, um, you can see that um, a party may not necessarily have a choice because if they don't go ahead, the wedding will be cancelled. And that obviously means that um, a vulnerable party is left in a very difficult situation. Mm -hmm. um, so those are examples of uh, what, what would look like unfair terms where one party gets nearly everything and the other party gets uh, peanuts, just a, a few things. Yep. Yep. Okay. And now we're going to move on to some of the practices that can sort of take place in sort of ways that discuss the prenuptial agreement and to bring up the topic. Now, what are some steps that you would recommend to couples when discussing and negotiating those prenuptial agreements to ensure that you have, that they have a healthy and sort of an open conversation? When people get married, um, it's a big life uh, decision. Um, and uh, I would encourage couples to have marriage, go through a marriage preparation course. Um, there are trade experts that um, can help you deal with some of the contentious questions when you get married. Um, mm. So one potential area of conflict is financial disputes. Um, so. Uh, I think going through marriage preparation courses provides a formal setting where uh, these issues can be aired in a more objective way in a less emotional uh, setting. Um, obviously, uh, you could just simply have the frank discussion at home and or with your partner and discuss these matters. Um, however, it, it may lead to conflict if there are different values about how money should be spent um, mm -hmm. and uh, the value of money. Uh, so um, having a third party uh, mediate uh, or facilitate discussions can help and mm -hmm. that's why a marriage preparation course can be helpful. Otherwise, um, if you are planning to enter into a prenuptial agreement, you can speak to your lawyer and have your discussions in that legal context. Um, so as I mentioned, you want um, a division between um, your legal discussions and uh, your day-to-day -day life. You don't want to constantly bring up the issue of prenuptial agreements and say, how come you didn't add this particular term to the <laughs> agreement and constantly badger your, your partner about it? That's not, not, not a good idea. Um, so having that formal setting may, may help um, promote a conducive outcome. Okay. And looking into some of the challenges that can sort of come about, especially when going through the marriage preparation course, what are, what are some of the challenges that could occur when 
going through those courses or even finding those courses? Uh, I, I don't think it's too hard to find courses. Um, there are a lot of providers out there. Okay. Um, there are non-government providers um, as well as religious providers like church. Um, so finding them shouldn't be too hard if you do a basic Google search. Um, but in terms of going through that process, it's an eye-opening experience because when a couple is engaged, they're in their uh, honeymoon phase, think their partner spouse is perfect, and it may be worth reflecting on some of the challenges that may uh, be encountered uh, once they get married. Um, so uh, having a time to reflect upon um, uh, some of those, those challenges, including finances, is important. That way you are prepared, um, that you're ready for um, potential areas of dispute. Um, because conflict arises typically as a result of miscommunication. Um, agreements can occur because one party doesn't feel the other party has been fully transparent. Mm -hmm. uh, they may feel that um, the other party has been evasive or has hidden things from them. Um, so uh, transparency is key for any healthy relationship. Okay. No, I, I love the, I think that keyword today is going to be transparency and being open because I think that's such an important part of having that conversation even before the prenuptial agreement sort of takes place. Now we're going to go into our open mic section and now this gives you a chance to talk about something that we have missed today or something that is of interest to you as well. Um, so in the last couple of minutes, I'd love to give you the floor and just, yeah, just share any thoughts that you have for today. Okay. Uh, well, I think it's worth comparing um, how other countries uh, deal with prenuptial agreements mm -hmm. um, because there is a spectrum of um, legal responses. So uh, in many states in uh, America, uh, if you sign a prenuptial agreement, the view is that it is legally binding. They have a strong view about the sanctity of contract. Mm -hmm. um, so if you follow celebrity culture or um, um, watch American TV shows or listen to American music, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of references to prenuptial agreements. Um, and they are seen as... Um, legally enforceable. I, I mean, they can be set aside, but you would have to demonstrate that there's been uh, duress, um, that basically a, a party had been forced to enter into it. And, and there is, as I said, uh, sanctity of contracts. So if you agree to unfair terms, well, that's too bad. You have to live the consequences of your decision. Mm -hmm. uh, New Zealand takes a different approach. Um, so in New Zealand, uh, yes, prenuptial agreements can be legally binding, but they can be set aside for more reasons than in Australia. So as I mentioned, if uh, enforcement of the prenuptial agreement causes serious injustice, then the court can uh, overturn the prenuptial agreement and they will come under general family law uh, provisions in New, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, in Australia, we're somewhere in between uh, America and New Zealand. 
Um, so uh, there is promotional freedom of contract. You're free to enter into whatever terms that you wish. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is possible to set prenuptial agreements aside um, for reasons such as unconscionable dealing or undue influence. And these uh, factors are interpreted more expansively compared to the situation in America. You wouldn't be able to make that argument in the United States, in okay. many jurisdictions. But we don't have a, a procedural fairness or a serious injustice provision in our laws. So um, it, 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 as I said, it, it, it's somewhere in between. Uh, the UK approach is also a bit similar to Australia as well. Um, so in terms of how to improve the legal system. I, I personally like the New Zealand approach. I think parties should have the right to decide how they wish to divide their property on separation. It is their lives. They need to make decisions that will uh, be in their own interests. Um, and we don't want parties to constantly litigate court because it's costly, time-consuming, and it's not desirable uh, for promoting good outcomes. But at the same time, we don't want exploitation. We don't want vulnerable parties to be left in a state of poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to ensure that vulnerable parties are protected with legal safeguards, such as a provision that would set aside a prenuptial agreement if it promotes uh, serious injustice. Um, And it's not only an issue that affects uh, the couple, it also affects society more broadly um, because if uh, a person s- separates and divorces, they are left in a financially uh, precarious situation. Um, and if a person ends up on social welfare, there is a cost associated to the taxpayer. Um, it causes societal problems. Um, so we, we do have to think about the wider context. There is obviously a dispute among private individuals, but there are also public policy and social outcomes that we need to think about. We want a a society where there are stable relationships. We want a resilient society, and we want those who do decide to separate and divorce to be left in a secure financial position. Mm. No, I think especially when it comes to the case that you were talking about earlier, the Thorn versus Kennedy, if that was in a New Zealand circumstance, then a completely different outcome without the safeguard, I guess. Well, with Thorn and Kennedy, the prenuptial rent was set aside, but if that case was heard in America, maybe mm-hmm. not. It might have been okay. too bad for the wife because, well, she went to a lawyer twice yeah. and um, had still signed the agreement nonetheless. With the New Zealand approach, if a, a set of facts that was similar to Ford and Kennedy were heard in New Zealand, um, the uh, prenuptial agreement could just simply be set aside for serious injustice. There would be no need to argue um, undue influence or unconscionability because those factors attack um, the validity of the contract itself whereas a serious injustice provision is a statutory safeguard to ensure that uh, enforcement or prenuptial agreements don't lead to adverse outcomes for uh, the vulnerable party. 
Okay. Yeah, you can see it's tricky because you want to respect people's free choices, even the choice to make bad decisions. But at the same time, uh, we obviously need to ensure safeguards for vulnerable parties. Mm. So, you know, for, for the courts to intervene, it kind of overturns the idea of a prenuptial agreement, an agreement that the couples have made. Um, but at the same time, yeah, we, we do need to promote um, good public policy as well. Yes, no, I, I definitely agree with that, especially if later on down the line, children are involved and situations changed again, there is that availability for um, for the understanding of change in circumstances, which also fits really well. And that is such a great way for us to sort of sum up the show and talk about what we were and sort of end on what we were talking about today because I think there's a lot of lessons learned in a lot of legal practices that we spoke about today and especially in the cases of Thorne and Kennedy I think that is a very interesting case that I didn't like we don't really hear about those certain sort of cases that really play really well into how society works today in regards to relationships so thank you Henry so much for joining me on the show today Thank you, Dana, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed talking about prenups with you. Yes, no, I, I definitely can see the enthusiasm. I think I, I love talking about this as well because we don't get to speak about it quite often. If there's a way that audiences would like to get into contact with you to ask questions that I have missed or to just sort of discuss some of these topics that we spoke about today even further, is there any contact information that I am able to give out to the audience? Sure. Um, uh, the audience can get in touch with me by um, emailing me. Um, so I have a Macquarie University uh, online profile. So if you just simply type my name into Google, you should be able to find my Macquarie University profile and it will have my email address. Okay, perfect. Well, I will have that down in the link as a link down below for easy access for all our audience. Um, well, yeah, thank you so much again, Henry, for joining me. If you guys have any questions, feel free to either put it in the comments down below or even send it over to Henry. I'm sure that will be an amazing sort of conversation to have. So thank you guys so much for listening. I will see you all in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.